On August 28, 1963, Martin Luther King stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial before a massive and silent multitude, and he uttered those words that have become an indelible part of American history, I have a dream. And in that memorable speech, he outlined his vision of an integrated society, of a just society, of a compassionate society. Well, I want to suggest to you this morning that Romans chapter 15 is a chapter outlining Paul's vision. And in this chapter, in essence, Paul is saying, I have a dream. I have a dream of seeing the church in genuine unity with one mind and one voice and one purpose to glorify God. With each of us pleasing our neighbors and not just ourselves. With each of us accepting one another as Christ has accepted us. I have a dream of planting churches all over the known world. I have a dream of coming to the capital of the Roman Empire. And then I have a dream of going from there on to Spain with the gospel. Paul says, I have a dream. What kind of dream do you have? You know, Dag Hammarskjöld, the former Secretary General of the United Nations, relates the story of a man who sailed with Columbus when he discovered America. And the following was found written in his diary. I hope I can get home soon and get that job at the cobbler's shop down the road from where I live. And Hammerskull's perceptive insight was this. Here was a man on a journey discovering new worlds, and yet he couldn't see beyond his own street. Aren't we like that oftentimes? Our dreams don't always coincide with the journey that we're on. We are on a spiritual journey uncovering new worlds. And some of us can't see beyond our own street. I think Paul would want to pose this question to each of us. If you are not dreaming about building and serving and adding to the church, if you are not dreaming about beautifying the bride of Christ, if you are not dreaming about furthering the kingdom of God, then what are you dreaming about? If you're not absorbed in the advancement of the cause of Jesus Christ on this earth, then what are you absorbed in? If being an integral part of a vibrant work of God in a church doesn't make your heart beat fast, then what does make your heart beat fast? If you were forced to complete the speech, I have a dream, what would your dream be? Are you, like Paul, dreaming of seeing Christ's church being all that it can be? Are you, like, Christ, or like Paul, dreaming of future opportunities to serve Christ? Or do all of your dreams begin and end with you? Can it be said of you, he can't see beyond his own street? You know, some of us need one of those old-fashioned aqua velva 
spiritual slaps in the face. We need to get our thinking clarified. We need to be reminded of the fundamentals of what it means to be radically devoted to Jesus Christ, of what it means to set our minds on things above, of what it means to be single-minded soldiers in the only army that really matters, of what it means to dream lofty dreams. And probably the best way to begin to stir our complacency is to admire the example of the Apostle Paul because he was a man with a dream. And in verses 1 to 13 of chapter 15 that we looked at last time, he outlines his dream of seeing the church in genuine unity. And now beginning in verse 14 of this chapter to the end, he turns to his own personal ministry and dreams. And this is really a transition point in the book of Romans because chapters 1 to 11 is doctrinal. Chapter 12 through chapter 15 and verse 13 is practical. And now beginning in chapter 15 and verse 14 to the end of the book, it's personal. And in this personal section, the last half of chapter 15 describes Paul's attitude about himself. And then chapter 16 describes his attitude about others. And I think Paul includes this personal element in this letter because he writes a very bold letter to people in a city where he had never been. He had never met most of these people. These people had not seen his face. And so it's fitting that he closes this letter by describing some things about his own personal life and ministry. And in doing so, Paul presents himself five ways in the end of chapter 15. He presents himself as a priest, a preacher, a pioneer, a planner, and a prayer. And we're going to look at the first two this morning. The first is Paul the priest in verses 14 to 16. And if you'll notice the, begin, or the middle of verse 16, he says, ministering as a priest the gospel of God. And so here Paul's looking at himself as a priest. Now, what did a priest do? Well, a priest in the Old Testament was ordained to bring offerings to God. And so I want to notice how this aspect of Paul's ministry unfolds in these verses. Notice verse 14. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. Now remember, Paul has never been to Rome, and yet here we see that he knows something about these Roman Christians. And he mentions three things. Number one, he says, you're full of goodness. Now, that's an interesting assessment given that it comes at the end of this book. Because earlier in this book, he made this statement in chapter 3 and verse 12. He says, there is none who does good, there is not even one. And then he said of himself in chapter 7 and verse 18, in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. And yet now at the end of this book, he says to the Romans, you are full of goodness. Why? Because they have been born again by the Spirit of God, and they have been filled with the Spirit of God, and the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, what? 
goodness. So you see, when you are filled with the Spirit of God, you are full of goodness. And then secondly, he says, you're filled with all knowledge. See, these people in Rome were not lightweight, mamby-pamby, shallow Christians. Paul says you are filled with all knowledge. They knew the Scriptures. They knew God's truth. And so they were filled with goodness, and they were filled with knowledge. And I would suggest to you that those are the two ingredients of a balanced Christian life. Knowledge and goodness. Doctrine and love. What you know and what you do. And these two ingredients lead to a third statement that he makes, and that is, he says, you are able also to admonish one another. That word admonish means literally to put in mind. It's to come to someone who's out of line and warn them, advise them, correct them. It's almost synonymous with our modern use of the word counsel. And so Paul says, you are able to counsel each other. You know, it troubles me today how quick Christians are to run to secular counselors. I would suggest to you that you better be sure that God approves of your counselor and not just you. What is God's criteria for a counselor? Who does God consider to be competent to counsel? Someone who has a degree in psychology? Someone who has an established clientele? No. He tells us here, it's any Christian who is full of goodness and filled with all knowledge. You see, if I'm out of line in my life, whether it's in my relationship to God or to my spouse or to my family or to others, I want someone to correct me who is competent in the eyes of God. Because he's filled with knowledge from the Word, and he's filled with goodness by the Spirit of God. And Paul says that was the case with the Roman Christians. They were able to admonish one another. And I can say the same thing about most of you. Now, why is Paul saying such glowing things about the Roman Christians? Well, he does this in order to present his purpose in writing. And he gives a twofold purpose in writing. Number one is their remembrance. Notice verse 15. But I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again. See, Paul doesn't say, I wrote to you because I think you're a bunch of subpar Christians. I didn't write to you because I didn't plant the church in Rome and I've never been to Rome and so I'm kind of thinking you guys are inferior. Paul says, I didn't write to you because, to admonish you because I thought you couldn't admonish yourself. You can't admonish yourself. You're full of goodness. You're full of knowledge. You're able to counsel. But Paul says, I have written to you. Why? I have written to you to remind you. Now, if the book of Romans is just a reminder to these Christians, that tells me they were pretty mature Christians. I don't know about you, but as we've gone through the book of Romans, I've learned a lot of things on our journey this time. Paul says, I'm writing to you to remind you. And that's really what all teachers do. They remind you. I think of that every Sunday. I get up here to to speak and I prepare and I'm thinking, they already know this. But you know what? Even though you know it, 
you need to be reminded of it. Whenever I'm asked to go speak somewhere, I inevitably think to myself, I need to come up with something that is altogether new and different. And then I sit down and try to prepare it, and I realize I don't know anything new and different. So I go and I remind them of what they already know. And it's effective because we all need to be reminded. And so Paul says, reason number one in writing to you is to remind you. It's for your reminder. And then second reason is his responsibility. Notice verse 15 at the end. He says, because of the grace that was given to me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Now, did you catch that? Paul says there's only one reason why I'm a minister of God. And that is the grace that he's given me. I feel the same way. There's only one reason that I'm a minister. I, I didn't take an aptitude test to figure out what I would do best in life. God, by his grace, called me to this position. It's all him. And that's what Paul is telling us here. Ministry is not achieved. It's received. Remember what Jesus said? He said, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you to go forth and bear fruit. Paul saw his calling as a minister by the grace of God. He calls the spiritual gift that he has, and all, all of us have, grace. It's a gift. In fact, look back at chapter 12 and verse 3. He says, for through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you. And so it was by grace that he was a minister of the gospel. It was by grace that he was an apostle. And then he tells us here in chapter 15, the specific area of his ministry. In verse 16, he says, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. That was his responsibility. He said back in chapter 11 and verse 13, I am an apostle of the Gentiles. And so by God's grace, I'm a minister. My area of ministry, my area of responsibility is to the Gentiles. And this is where he sees himself as a priest. Notice the rest of verse 16. Ministering as a priest the gospel of God, that my offering of the Gentiles might become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now what did a priest do? He brings offerings to God. What is Paul's offering? What is Paul's sacrifice that he's bringing to God? Well, he says, it's the Gentiles. And the church at Rome was largely a Gentile church. And so Paul is saying, God has entrusted me with the gospel. He has sent me out to the Gentiles. I've carried out my ministry like a priest, and I am bringing an offering to God, and that offering is the Gentiles. And he says, I want that offering to, number one, be acceptable. Now, isn't that an amazing thing? Gentiles acceptable? What was the condition for an offering to be acceptable to God? Had to be blameless and spotless. And Paul says, I've come to the Gentiles who were outcasts, separate from God, and I'm now bringing them as an offering to God. And guess what? You're acceptable. Why is that? Because Christ has taken your sin and given you his righteousness. That's the whole message of the first part of this book. We are now acceptable to God. And so as he brings this offering to the Gentiles, we're acceptable to him. And then he says, secondly, not only are you acceptable, but you are sanctified 
by the Holy Spirit. You are set apart by him. And again, we see Paul here, he gives credit where credit is due. He doesn't say, I did this. I made you acceptable. I made you sanctified. He says, you're acceptable in Christ and you're sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, let me remind you of something that you may or may not know, and that is, if you're a believer, you are a priest. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5 says, we as the church are a holy priesthood and we are to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Every believer is a priest. And in the book of Romans, we've been told about two sacrifices we each are to bring. The first is in chapter 12 and verse 1. I am to present my body as a living sacrifice to the Lord. And after I do that, then here in chapter 15 and verse 16, I'm to offer others to God. I'm to reach out and bring others to God. That's what I do as a priest. I give myself to him, and then after that's done, I start reaching out and trying to bring others through the gospel to God as well. Let me show you a verse. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 19. Paul asks the question here, for who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? You are our glory and joy. You know, when Jesus comes back, the thing that's going to bring me the greatest joy is not that I'm there. Because I already know I'm going to be there. I've already got that joy. And, and I had nothing to do with my being there. It's all grace. What will bring me the greatest joy when Jesus comes back is seeing someone else there that I led to Christ or I nurtured or I discipled. Because God allows me to be a co-worker in that process. And here Paul says, that's not only my joy, that's my crown. And when we come to the book of Revelation chapter 4, what do we find that we do with our crowns? We take our crowns and we lay them at the feet of the Lord Jesus to bring him glory forever. And so he says you're a priest. You present yourself and then you help bring others to him. And all of that is part of the crown that will bring glory to the Lord forever. And so as Paul looks at his ministry, he sees himself as a priest and his offering his people, and his dream is to present an acceptable offering to the Lord. And then secondly, we see Paul the preacher in verses 17 to 19. And if you'll notice the end of verse 19, he says, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so these verses describe Paul the preacher. Notice how he starts out in verse 17. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. Now, most preachers only get the middle phrase of verse 17, and that is, I have found reason for boasting. And unfortunately, that's too characteristic of too many preachers. The I, me, my syndrome. Who did Paul boast in? Christ Jesus. And what did Paul boast about? Things pertaining to God. And again, he gives the credit where the credit is due. 
And then he goes on in verses 18 and 19 to describe himself as a preacher. And in these two verses, we can glean four principles that should characterize any effective preacher's life and ministry. Four virtues of an effective preacher. Number one, he was humble. Notice verse 18. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. What a statement. You know, if we live by that principle, it would shorten a lot of our conversations. I'm not going to talk about anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. What humility. You know, that verse tells me there are three things about Paul. Number one, he didn't take credit for what others did. He didn't, he didn't say, you know, an idea comes up. He didn't say that was my idea when it was really somebody else's idea. Paul didn't pad his resume on things that other people had done. He didn't take credit for what others did. But secondly, this phrase tells me he didn't exaggerate about his own accomplishments. You know, I find that too many preachers are long on numbers and short on math. You, know, you ask a preacher, you say, well, how many people are in your church? He'll say, well, there are 300. Of course, that's counting the mailing list. Or how many people came forward? Well, 150 people came forward. Of course, 100 were counselors. How many people got saved? Well, 75 people got saved. Of course, we're Arminian, so some were getting saved for the third or fourth time. We often exaggerate what's going on. And Paul didn't do that. But then thirdly, and I think most important from this phrase, it tells me not only did he not take credit from other people, and not only did he not exaggerate, but he didn't even take credit for what he did. Because he says here, it's not what I have accomplished for Christ, it's what Christ has accomplished through me. Now that's important wording. And I want you to look at it carefully and underline it if need be. You know, there's a little saying that, that I've heard for a long time, and it's always troubled me. And it's this. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Well, I would like to edit that. Because Paul says, it's only what Christ does through me that will last. Did Jesus say, apart from me, you can do a little bit? No. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, you have no ability. What you only have is availability for God to work through you. If you're saying, I can do it, you're useless to God. You have to be saying, I'm an empty vessel, God. You work through me, and you accomplish it all. That's why when people come to me and I, we talk about doing a ministry, and they say, I don't think I can do it, I say, you're qualified. Because, see, if you're coming and saying, I think I can do it, we don't need you. We need people who are empty vessels through whom God can work so that he accomplishes the work and he gets the glory. That was the first virtue in Paul's life as a preacher. He was humble. Second, he was consistent. Notice the end of verse 18. Resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word 
and thee. Now, my translation isn't real clear here, but it's obvious in the Greek that this phrase, by word and deed, is referring back to Paul and not the Gentiles. You see, a big reason for his successful ministry was that he was consistent. Paul could say, my life matches my words. And nothing destroys the work of God faster than a minister whose life denies his message. And we've had too much of that in the news media in the last few years. Preachers with high profile and low character. And that's why James warned, don't let many of you be teachers, because as such you incur a stricter judgment. People want to see actions that line up with our words, because there is no substitute for consistency. Paul was what he taught. He was his message. He was consistent. And then thirdly, he was dependent. Notice verse 19. In the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit. Paul preached in the power of the Spirit. Now, how do you preach in the power of the Spirit? Does that mean you shout a lot and you scream a lot and you have a dominant personality? No. I know that's not the case because if you turn over a few pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 3, Paul describes his preaching style in 1 Corinthians 2, 3, and he says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling... And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Paul was a trembling preacher. His knees knocked together while he was preaching the message of the gospel. And yet when he preached, it was evident that God was at work. And he says here in Romans chapter 15 that signs and wonders were taking place. If you go back to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19, you'll find that people were taking handkerchiefs and aprons from Paul to the sick, and they were being healed. You know, the problem with many churches today is there's no power in them. Everything can be explained by we need to get more people in Sunday school and we need to balance the budget. But the question is always, where is the work of God? You know how you can tell that God is at work in a church? It's not because the preaching is loud. It's not because the music is loud. It's because lives are being changed. And that's what happened through the preaching of Paul. He says back in verse 18, it resulted in the obedience of the Gentiles. How was that happening? Because there was power in his preaching. And how did Paul get power in his preaching? I believe it was because Paul learned to be dependent upon the Spirit of God. Spiritual ministry has to be done in spiritual power. And that's so important for preachers to learn. I learned that lesson early on in my ministry. The first time I was ever asked to go speak at a camp was out in Colorado Springs. I was fresh out of Bible college. 
They said, we want you to come here and preach for a week. I didn't have a week's worth of sermons. So I said, all right, I'll go. And then I started studying, and I prepared, and I prepared, and I prepared. And I had messages that were prepared and polished and plastic. And when I got out to Colorado Springs, it was very evident to me that I had prepared what I thought were great messages, and they really, really weren't anointed by God. And so I began to preach out there. I preached, I think, Sunday night and Monday night and Tuesday night, and it was just like nothing was happening. And I could tell it, and they could tell it. And at the end of Tuesday night, they said, well, after, after you speak Tuesday, we're going to show a movie, and then we're gonna, we want you to give an invitation after the movie. So they showed a movie after I spoke, and, and it was, uh, uh, this was a long time ago, it was a Christian drama that actually turned out to be a comedy for the kids. They were just laughing at it. In fact, let me tell you this, before I went, they told me, we, we know there are five high school kids at this camp who are unbelievers. So, and they even knew who they were. They told me who they were. They said, we want to target these five guys. So we watched the movie, and unfortunately, the movie was going on this reel-to-reel, -reel, and it missed the reel where it was the collection reel, so it was going over the top and down onto the floor. So they turned the lights on after the movie, and the kids had been laughing through the whole drama anyway, and then they look, and there's this huge pile of spaghetti on the floor, and they're just laughing and rolling around, and, and so I go up to give an invitation. So I stand up, and I said, you know, I don't know how God has spoken to you, but Everybody here is leaving. They're going to go down and have snacks. And I said, if you are serious with God, I want you to stay in your seat while everyone else leaves. And I began to pray. And a 17-year-old boy sitting right near the front began to weep uncontrollably while I was praying. Everybody left. I sat down with him and had the privilege of leading him to Jesus Christ. I went out of there down to where they were having the snacks, and as I was walking along the path, path I heard a rustling in the bushes next to me. And it was one of the other fellows coming out of the bushes. And he said, Dan, could you show me how I could come to know Jesus Christ? And I said, sure. And we went back to the, the building and sat down, and he invited Jesus Christ into his life. Well, the next morning, I woke up with the worst pain I've ever had in my stomach. I was bent over and couldn't straighten up. And so they rushed me to the hospital, and I had a kidney stone. And so I was in the hospital, laid up in a bed there, thinking, how are they ever going to get by without my great sermons? And, and so what they did, since I was in the hospital, they, they put all the kids on buses and they brought them over to the hospital and the, they could only come in two at a time into my room. So they came into my room to say, hi, sorry, you're sick, and so forth, and left. And the last two fellows came in and they were, they were hanging around for a long time. I couldn't figure out why they were hanging around so long. And finally they, they got around to saying, you know, the reason we asked to come in last is because... We'd like to know how to accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. And so they pulled two chairs up by my bed, and I had a privilege of laying there in that bed, leading them to Jesus Christ. Well, I got out of the hospital on Friday morning, just in time to go for Friday night to give another terrible message. And then they had a campfire after that message, and the last fellow came up to me at the campfire, and he said, can we take a walk? And we walked out in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, and he invited Jesus Christ into his life. And as I look at that occasion, I realize God was saying to me right from the start, don't give me fancy messages. Don't, I, I'm not depending, Dan, on what you can do. I want you 
to depend on what I can do. And that's a lesson I hope I'll never forget, that I am an empty vessel through whom God works. And to have his power, like Paul, I have to be dependent on him. And then the fourth thing, Paul was thorough. Notice the end of verse 19. So that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. From Jerusalem to Illyricum, that's just across the sea from Italy, Paul says, I have fully preached the gospel. So Paul is saying, I have been thorough. I have covered the entire area and I have covered the entire message. I have fully preached the gospel. You know, some preachers have their pet doctrines. They have their theological hobby horses. In fact, there are certain guys, when they turn the TV on and I see them on TV, I can tell you, as soon as I see their face, I can tell you what they're talking about. Because they're riding their hobby horse. And they're talking about prosperity or healing or giving or positive thinking or something. There are other preachers, I hear them say, you know, I don't talk about the second coming because it's too controversial. Or I I don't preach on prophecy because it's too difficult. Or I don't talk about the difference between law and grace because I don't really understand it. Well, Paul says, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 27, he said, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of of God. Paul was thorough. And so Paul presents himself as a preacher in verses 17 to 19. And in many ways this applies to all of us in the sense that we are all called to share the gospel. And Paul is our model. He is humble, consistent, dependent, and thorough. If you could stand on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in front of a sea of people and describe your vision, your passion, or if I brought you up here this morning and I said, I want you to speak to everybody here and I want you to begin by saying, I have a dream, what would you say? I trust that you can say with Paul, I have a dream to impact eternity as a priest presenting myself to God and then reaching out and presenting others to him as well, and as a preacher humbly spreading the gospel from a life that lives it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for this great example of the Apostle Paul, what you accomplished in his life from being a Christian killer to being your ambassador of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that we might learn from the examples we see in him as Paul the priest and Paul the preacher to realize you've given us at whatever level the same responsibility. And Father, I pray that we might truly show forth the virtues that we see in his life so that your power might flow through us and so that Paul's dream might be shared with us and accomplished through us that we might see true unity in the body of Christ and the kingdom of God furthered to the extent that you desire. In Jesus' name, amen.